creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk You're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. For most of us creative people, most of the time, time is the biggest issue. It's the most precious and scarce commodity there is. Like, I always thought, once I go full-time artist, man, I'm going to have so much time. I'm going to be able to make anything that I want to make. But... Now that I am a full-time artist and have been for quite some time, I know that the sad fact is that that is not true. There is never going to be enough time to make everything that you want to make. And I have more time than I've ever had. And, I've, and I still get frustrated that I'm not able to uh, ha- have all the time to make the work that I want to make or know how to spend my time in the right way. You know, even worse than all that is that when you finally do have, you know, a morning or a half day, a nice juicy chunk of time blocked out, blocked out from the world to make something, I find that I will waste that time either not knowing what to make or getting started with something and second guessing it the whole time of like, is this the wise way to use this time? Should I be making something else? It is such an awful feeling. It's so distracting from trying to get into the flow state. And that's why at the start of this show, there's a jingle that says on the creative journey, it's easy to get lost. Because for me, the experience of being lost is the most apt analogy for the creative struggle. That feeling of trying one thing, trying to work on one piece or one project and then giving up and then trying another and doing the same thing over and over, never actually making any progress, that feels like being lost. Like take one step that way and you're worried like, am I getting closer to where I want to be or further away? Like all you can do in that moment is freeze. I mean, think back to actually being lost at the pharmacy as a kid, you know, worried about like, where's my mom? And, or maybe you got lost in the woods, like Bon Iver, I don't know. But seriously, every wrong move feels like the one where everything's gonna be lost. You're gonna miss your chance. You're gonna miss the opportunity. Your mom has left the store without you. Your dreams are leaving the station without you. It's like this analysis paralysis FOMO cocktail will totally get you drunk on on confusion and take you nowhere you wanna be really fast. If you feel hyper vigilant, you know, obsessive over whether you're wasting time or doing the wrong stuff and your potential is just flying right by in front of you, this episode is for you. In this episode, I wanna propose that while being lost is some of the time part of the creative journey, It's not your home. It's not where you should just ultimately set up camp. Let's explore how to find your way back to the creative path when you've realized that you've lost the creative plot. But first, just a quick word from our sponsors. I 
really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new Fluid Engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site anyway. Go check it out, anyjpizza.com if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. We're in the middle of our creative summer school series. Essentially, this series is a recap and a reintegration of the most essential ideas from the show over the years, the strategies and tips that have had the biggest impact on my creative practice. They're the ones that I go back to over and over. Like I just can every few months I kind of I check in with these ideas and I wanted to put them together so that we could apply them afresh like I do so frequently and integrate them into each other to make a more orderly framework, piecing them together to kind of get the best results. This is part three of that series. Last episode, we talked about creating a portfolio to prove you're perfect for the roles that you want to get. This episode is about how to choose what you do as you're making the portfolio, as you're going to make the piece or decide what the project is going to be you know, in a bigger way, making every illustration, every song, every chapter, every podcast to that portfolio project, how do you choose what to make them about? How do you choose what to do as you're working through every individual little choice as you work through the actual creative process? That's what this episode is about, how to work your way through 
actually making the portfolio. The one thing you need to start moving and make progress and actually make choices that uh, mean that you actually make something with that time that you have is you have to be able to hear and trust yourself. We're going to talk about that on this episode. It sounds like empty platitude stuff, but it's not. We're going to get very practical. When I say hear and trust yourself, I mean a very specific way of creating. And that's what we're going to get into. Let's do it. Chapter one, what's good? The first step to getting unlost creatively, how to know what to make and how to make the choices necessary to actually finish a project or finish a piece. Yeah, to do that, I really believe that you have to define what is good to you. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like getting lost is, like I said, a huge part of the creative process. I, I think it's important to take big enough risks that sometimes you're going to get lost. I think that's part of creativity. Uh, it, it is a definitive part of the creative practice. Uh, so much so that I think most artists actually go on to kind of develop a Hedbergian kind of philosophical framework for just accepting lostness. That's right. Hedbergian. Oh, what's that? Is that the faint sound of a bunch of philosophy Miners lightly dusting off your monocles to, to butt in with the soul-crushing, well, actually, it's not Hedbergian, it's Hegelian. No, I didn't mispronounce it. I'm talking about another, maybe even greater dialectic, my dear, because this one was developed by the late great philosopher and one-line stand-up comedian Mitch Hedberg. What is the Hedbergian philosophical framework for accepting lostness? Uh, well, one of his jokes, he said, if you find yourself lost in the woods, F it, build a house, and you'll be like, well, I was lost, but now I live here. I've severely improved my predicament. We get so lost so often as creators and get lost again as soon as we think we found our way that at some point, most of us just kind of wholesale embrace it. Like to be creative is just to be permanently lost, man. Build a house, like don't fight it. Just live in the lostness, in the land of the lost. Make it your home. And sometimes, you know, I think there's an element that is true to this mindset of like, don't panic about being lost. Don't, you know, accept it. Uh, but I think it depends on kind of what season you're in. You know, there are seasons in life where you try everything and there are these life circumstances that have just not made it possible to make progress. And I've been in there for years at a time at different points in my life. And that is real. And I want to acknowledge and honor that and, and, and affirm that idea. Sometimes lostness isn't a thing that you can break out of. And the best thing you can do is to just kind of warmly embrace and accept that you're lost at this moment. And that's all you can do. There's that, the only thing you can control is accepting it. On the other hand, though, because I actually think that that mentality is a place that some creators set up camp indefinitely and just forfeit all of the agency that they have. But I am not one of these creators that think you should never get lost. 
that creativity is purely an equation to solve. And those with the gift are always poised to solve it. It's easy. They ne- If you're good, you never get lost. Like, what are you wandering out in the desert wasting your life for when you could just be taking life by the horns and crushing it, man? You just got to hustle harder. Like, which, which one is it? Which is the correct posture to lostness in the creative path? You guessed it. They're both wrong and right uh, sometimes. <laughs> Isn't that helpful? Do you feel unlost yet? Um, no, uh, they're probably not that helpful yet, but stick with me. I think that maybe the creator's job isn't to always be lost or always be found. The creator's job is to discern as they go and ultimately learn how to trust yourself, how to know when like, this is a season, this is a moment, this is a a piece to just kind of like fumble in the dark and see what happens and see what we find. And then there are seasons where you're like, oh, I have a end in mind where we're going. I need to just move forward. Now, before you think this idea of trusting yourself just sounds like an empty platitude, I am going to talk about how how this isn't a hollow abstract notion. It's actually something with nuts and bolts that you can actively tap into when you feel like you're lost, when you don't know how to make decisions. And for me as a creator, Tuning into this true north, tuning into the part of you that knows what you think is good, what you think the right decision is, that to me is the ultimate creative skill. The ability to know that as you move through things, you're going to have to discern in the moment and listen to yourself, not It's not always one way. It's not always the other way. It's not always lostness. It's not always foundness. It's not always create like this. This is the right way to make this thing. This is the thing that's good or this is the thing is bad. But to be able to listen to yourself internally, to your own taste and to your own opinions and to your own definition of good and create from that place. And the way that you do that is to define good. All of you know, I'm a huge story nerd. I just love story. That's my favorite creative pursuit, outlet, medium. I love deconstructing what makes stories that make us cry and cheer. I just love that stuff. I love making stories, telling stories, everything about it. And if you are a story nerd, you probably are aware that in most stories, there's some kind of mentor or guide that helps the hero you know, Obi-Wan or Yoda or Dumbledore or, you know, you you think of a story, usually as it moves along, you can see like, oh, might not even be a traditional mentor, but someone is from the start giving good advice to the hero. Now, I don't want to get super in the weeds about storytelling per se, but essentially most classic stories are a hero who's in the middle of a crisis who needs to make choices and take action. This is you in the moment of crisis. This is your two hour block on a Sunday morning. This is your story. This is your time to make some choices. Like you are the hero in that moment. When you go to make creative work, you have to take action. You have to make choices. You have to actually make something. 
How do you decide what's right, what's wrong? How do you decide what to make? Even once you're making something, how do you know? Should I make it blue? Should I make it red? Should I make it aqua green? Like what is, what should it be? Let's look at what a hero in a story does because I think there is some wisdom here that might help you know how to spend your time and find your way. The hero has to make choices. The guide is telling them, a philosophy or a value that may help them make a good choice. Okay, easy peasy. Just figure out, just listen to your guides, man. All right, we'll close up shop. Another episode of the Creative Pep Talk podcast. No, there's just one problem. You actually got to decide who is your guide. That's the first problem. Easy. Again, right? It's Dumbledore. I mean, he looks like a friendly Gandalf Santa kind of guy. He's got to be the guide, right? Wait, is it actually Snape? No, Snape is clearly the villain, right? Like black clothes, black slick back hair. You think this is slicked back? This is pushed back. But if you know the story, I'm not going to tell you anything, but maybe Snape isn't just so bad. What if Dumbledore isn't as benevolent as he seems? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see through nine books or movies. But in any decent story... The villain and the guide are hard to distinguish. If it's too obvious, maybe you know which one you like more or which one seems like a better human, but when it comes to their actual philosophy, a great villain has a compelling philosophy. You know, they, it has to be something that's at least confusing to the hero, if not to the audience. Like, that's a grown-up story. I think this is what makes like Thanos from the MCU, from Marvel movies. If you're not familiar, Thanos is this guy. He's got an awful plan. It's the worst kind of plan you can have. It's basically genocide. It's awful, awful, awful. But I think what makes him a phenomenal villain, in my personal opinion, in my definition of good, is that although his method is clearly uh, heinous, his motivation is kind of confusing because unlike most villains, the driving force behind Thanos' mission isn't personal greed. And it's not about doing just what he wants to do or getting what he wants. He is fighting tooth and nail almost as the hero of the story in his story, not for selfish reasons, but to do what he believes will actually save the world. Now that's a good villain. His philosophy has some things about it that make it at least confusing if it's all bad. A good villain is an oxymoron. You know, good villain, bad good at the same time. And that is life. So who is the guide and who is the villain? Is it the Mitch Hedberg creative that says lost isn't a temporary thing? It's actually you need to make lost from a house to a home. Like you need to just live here and just accept you will always feel lost as a creator and just give up even trying to find your way. Or is your guide the kind of never settle for stagnation? If you're not growing, you're dying kind of business bro creator. Like which one was like you, if you're not always found, you're doing something wrong. The answer actually in a good, in a great story isn't found in the villain or the mentor. The answer is found by the true hero. And that's your job. Your job is to watch Enter the Spider-Verse <laughs> because it's my favorite superhero movie of all time. Yes, it's animated, 
don't, if that somehow stops you, I judge you just wholesale, but you should watch it. It's fantastic. It's the Miles Morales version of Spider-Man. And he is a true hero in my book. This is a Lord and Miller animated feature, and it's just probably one of my all-time favorite. It's it, probably my all-time favorite superhero movie. It's phenomenal because it's a, it is a truly good story in that the villain and the guide are both compelling in different ways. And what makes Miles a true hero is that he doesn't pick which one is right. Now you're like, hold on, man, what? He just stays in analysis paralysis forever, stuck in indecision and doesn't make a choice? That makes him a true hero? That's sounding pretty Hedbergian to me. No, he doesn't decide who the who the guide and who the villain is because he doesn't say this one's all right and that one is all wrong. Because the truth is, and great stories are able to capture this, every human is more complicated than that. Instead, he does what the true hero does, what any true creator does. He charts his own path. He sees the truth in what his dad, who is a cop, uh, who never steps out of line, you know, always does the right thing, never runs a red light, never steps out of line in any, any way. He sees the truth in what his cop dad does, but he also sees the truth in what his outlaw uncle tells him. And he takes the good, leaves the bad, and ultimately he synthesizes them. In the movie, his uncle even says to him, you're the best of all of us, Miles. Like, you're, you're the best sum of the, the good part of the philosophy of the good mentor and the good part of the philosophy of the villain. And he's convicted to, quote unquote, do the right thing like his dad. But unlike his dad, he's willing to do it even if it means breaking the law like his uncle. A true hero's purpose, in my opinion, is that you do what no one else would or can by charting that own path. We don't need another carbon copy of that mentor. We already have them. And that's the same for you as a creator, making work. We don't need you to just follow your creative heroes or guides blindly and just copy what they already did. You've got to discern. You've got to take influence from them, but also maybe some influence from what the cultural moment would deem as bad art. You've got to be the one that says, actually, there's something redeemable about this kind of stuff that really does it for me, and I'm going to show you how to integrate it. And the way that you do that is by trusting yourself, and I mean that in a very practical sense. listeners know what I'm getting at here, where I'm going with this. Some artists call it your intuition. I call it taste because I actually think your taste, your creative taste buds are what inform the intuition. And so it's a little bit before even knowing what to do is like how you, how things hit you when you taste them. It's more about, it starts with how you receive rather than just what you do. Uh, Okay. Who's going to listen to your music if you won't even listen to your own opinions on music. 
Like, you know, I saw a TikTok the other day of T-Pain just talking about how, you know, he would make a song and show it to people in the industry and everybody's got all these opinions and all this different stuff. But he's like, man, he learned to just be like, if this song does it for me, there are there is gonna be another person that feels exactly the same way, even if all these people have these different opinions. Like the thing you have to trust above all is your taste buds when you make it, when you're going through and trying different things and working your way through creating a piece the whole time, like a good chef, you're just tasting it. You're like, how does that feel? How did that hit me when I made it this? How, how did that? Did I like it? Did I not like it? Did it light me up? Did it make me, did it move me? Like Robert De Niro says it this way, the talent is in the choices. A lot of young actors have the idea that I've got to do this right. There's a right way to do this, but there's no right or wrong. There's only good and bad. This is groundbreaking. This idea, there's no right or wrong, but there is good or bad. That is the key of this entire episode. That's why chapter one is called what's good because there is good or bad. And I hear people say all the time, like this idea that no art is subjective. That means there is no good or bad. And I actually believe that isn't what subjective actually means. Creative work is, it's true, absolutely subjective. And I think for a lot of us, we take that to mean, you know, it's subjective. There is no right or wrong. There is no good or bad. But subjective doesn't mean that there isn't a good or a bad. And go ahead, Google it. Crack open a Webster's if you have to and take a look at what it is. I like this idea of cracking open a Webster's. It sounds like uh, a very posh kind of lager. It's, it sounds like, you know, Foster's is Australian for beer, Webster's. Webster's is British for pale ale. You probably didn't know that. Webster's, British for beer. But look it up. Seriously, Webster's says Foster's ain't Australian for beer. And subjective does not mean that there is no definition of good or bad. Subjective means based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Personal taste, meaning there is a good and a bad, but it's not agreed on by the masses. It's defined by the individual. The problem is you actually have to define it. You have to have an opinion. You have to be tapped into that and you have to allow that to, you have to trust it and listen to it, even when it means trusting quote unquote creative villains. And by that, I'm, I don't mean bad people. I mean, people that make quote unquote bad art throughout the ages that did it for you. Like what is an artist? What is a creative? Is it someone who thinks of things that no one else can? Is it someone who, you know, is an eccentric living on the fringe of society and norms? No, I don't think that's what it is. I think an artist is just the same thing as a hero. The same thing as Miles Morales as Spider-Man. It's the best of all of us. It is the type of creator that won't just listen blindly to the culture's current socially acceptable creative guides that are like, these are the in crowd. These are the people. These are the hip people at this moment. But no, people that are willing to adopt the thoughts and, uh, and embrace the influences of the creators that the, the culture currently is like not feeling and including just, 
you know, even when you make something that you're like, this doesn't fit within the box of what's cool right now, but for some reason it's doing it for me. And you have to learn to trust that opinion and that definition of good, your definition of good above all things. And that means making a choice. Artists are the ones that make a choice. Why? Because artists are the ones who make anything and and the only way to make anything is to make a choice, yellow or blue, G chord or C chord, natural lighting or dramatic lighting, asymmetrical or symmetrical. The, all it takes, I think, to be an artist is to choose. And the, and the artists that really tap into something are the ones that choose things not based just on the creative guides or villains or past or their, their culture, but based on their personal taste. Like, is Wolfgang Puck an artist? Yes, I think. He has made some stuff, therefore has made some choices. He's an artist. But more importantly, I think that Guy Fieri is an artist. Why? Because it's not about good taste. His flaming hot nacho cheese goodness is in the eye of the hot rod button-up Miller Lite beer holder. Like, is that nacho cheese good? It's up to this guy. And this guy knows what he likes. And like any hero, he trusts it. He's a hero in my book. He's from where I live, Columbus, Ohio. We actually had a whole uh, petition to turn Ohio's, Columbus, Ohio's name into Flavortown. And I signed it because um, <laughs> he's, he's a creative hero to me, um, no matter how he's judged, because I'm going to make my own opinion. I'm going to make my own choices. So do you just make lost a permanent home or should you always be crushing it? Both. They're both part of the journey, but how do you know where to accept and what to push through? You have to listen to yourself. You have to, you have to be in touch with, uh, where discerning where you are right now. The key is to know how to move through the choices. You'll never stay too lost too long and you will chart your own creative path to sometimes lost, but also sometimes massive breakthrough if you don't just accept it forever, even when that season is past. So how do you do it? You start to define your point of view. You start to say art is subjective, but that doesn't mean that there are no good or bad choices and that it doesn't matter and every decision is meaningless and vague. No, art is subjective and it means that you define what is good and what is bad. That means that it's time for you to start defining what's good. Here's how I do it. Chapter two, calibrating to true north. Okay, so here's the idea. To keep on track, to know what to make and how to make real progress as you're making it while you have the time and space to put in building that portfolio piece, the first part is about embracing that there is a good and a bad, but it's not defined by your creative heroes and it's not even defined by your villains. It is defined by you. So the second piece is about how to actually get in tune with what your definition is. Okay, here's the key to knowing how to make those choices, how to 
be a taste-driven creator, how to trust yourself. The key for me is to realize that, yes, you are the one who defines your taste, but that doesn't actually mean that you have a choice in what your taste is per se. Okay, in my opinion, developing your sense of taste is less like writing a work of fiction from scratch uh, dreaming up endless possibilities and directions for your work. And it's more like a research project only instead of researching some historic or psychological phenomenon, the research subject is you, it's your taste. The reason it's a research subject is that although you do have the ability to acquire new tastes, I definitely think that's true. That's the whole idea of acquiring tastes is that you didn't have them before. But in my experience, acquired tastes aren't always the best foundation for your creative journey. I've found that sometimes my acquired tastes are a little bit untrustworthy. Like these opinions that I've picked up over time, are they really mine? Or did I was I just heavily influenced by what I thought subconsciously would be? you know, gain me the best results, the things that would say the right things about me so I could gain social status by liking the quote unquote right thing. Like the ego wrapped up in so many of the things that we claim to like is not super helpful as a guide, as a true north. Like liking stranger things in the year 2022 when it's the most popular thing of all time on Netflix says a lot less about you and your taste and more th about the fact that you live in the year 2022. Like that info is just not that helpful for carving out your own unique definition of good what you've acquired and picked up along the way. Like the, I do, we, we're going to get to those things. I think they are important. I think developing and being open is essential to being creative, but Remember, the definition of what makes your work your work is that it's different than anyone else. And for that, I think you have to start with the authenticity of your innate tastes. So I truthfully do not know jack about philosophy. Like I, I didn't, I went to college in the UK and I didn't study philosophy under anybody. Um, but when I started to develop this taste idea and being a taste-led creator, I came across this notion from Immanuel Kant. I've talked a little bit about this on the show before. Uh, and some people actually believe this guy is the greatest philosopher of all time. I couldn't tell you because I cannot read this uh, material at all. I can only read the commentary. It just does not make any sense to me. Um, I'm just not there yet. Maybe one day I will, I'll have, I'll, I'll acquire a taste for that. But I came across all these ideas based on his work around the idea of taste because he believed that our tastes were one of just a few things that we have when we come into this world, like the things that we have before we're influenced by experience or others, he called these things a priori. And it meant that these things we have innately built into just who we are. And he just thought we have like a couple of these things, just a few of these things. And one of those things he defined as taste, that we have this sense of taste that we have this innate, like, as we go, try food, try art, you know, look at the sunset, like all these different things. We have an innate, an innate uh, opinion on what's good and what's bad. 
you know, what animals we think are cute and which ones we think are ugly. And yeah, we have a lot of these in common, but a lot of these are unique to us. And it's such an influential idea in that time that some people deemed this the century of taste when he came up with it. Like that's how monumental it was. Later, he changed the term taste to common sense, meaning it's a sense like a, one of your senses that we have in common, but we can go back to that maybe later. For now, my point is this, your base sense of taste, your true north in your creative work as you're going along, the most interesting and loudest true north for you as a creator is your a priori taste, aka what you like just because you like it. Not because you can defend it intellectually, not because it makes sense, not because by liking it, it puts you in the social status or the class you desire to be in, but just because you like it, it viscerally moves you. Like that's the true north, defining good for you, knowing how to make choices as you start and work your way through projects starts with researching yourself not cultivating your tastes, not, not gaining new tastes, but just seeing, just accepting, honoring, researching, knowing intimately what is the stuff that I love, not because I chose to love it, but because maybe even I wish that I didn't. That's where we get into guilty pleasures, which we are going to talk about. This is your authentic taste. That visceral feeling of like, this just hit me whether I wanted it to or not, that is the way that you can measure and taste your own work and create from that place. And here's the kicker, what this whole episode is leading to. That means that maybe the most interesting thing you could do, the most groundbreaking thing you could do is to make work that others currently seem as somewhat bad. That's right. Like this is why maybe the most powerful influence you have isn't your current culturally relevant, celebrated creative hero, but mining the ideas and influences from your cultural moments, creative villains. And like, like I said, I'm not talking about canceled people. I'm talking about people who just make stuff that isn't cool anymore. Like this is why you see creators diving way back into the past and finding stuff that for a, for a while, we've kind of felt like is just totally uh, not in sync with the times or just, we, you know, the t kind of taste that we've moved on from. Like that influence is some of the richest stuff as long as it's authentically still in this moment, viscerally moving you. So your so-called guilty pleasures may tell you more about your taste than your acquired tastes, I think. Because there's nothing more authentic than something that viscerally moves you when everything in the world is telling you that it shouldn't move you. This, this is the key to not repeating the same path as your creative Obi-Wan or Yoda or Dumbledore or what have you. And it's also how you don't repeat the path of your Darth father. Like the key to unlocking the creative work in your true north is your ability to integrate both of those perspectives, both of those philosophies, uh, you know, pushing past the surface of, wow, they, they look like the good guy. I better just do whatever they say. You know, my wife and kids saw the kids movie Bad Guys recently, and I didn't see it, but she said this line from it, which is the worst kind of bad guy that you really have to look out for are the ones that look like the good guys. 
like, you know, everybody can see Darth Vader and be like, probably shouldn't trust this guy, especially his, the person he's taking orders from, like the emperor. I don't know what his world philosophy is, but if it leads you with his kind of vibe, I want whatever the opposite of that is. But... The truth is, in reality, it's way more complicated like that because looks can be deceiving, you know, and and you have to push past the surface and you have to get in touch with your own discernment. Chapter three, the call to adventure. And this one is about your acquired tastes mash up with your guilty pleasures. Okay. Name this show. Season one, it's set in the past in a retro kind of setting about a high school girl who's fallen for the wrong kind of guy with a young nerdy brother with nerdy friends who play Dungeons and Dragons. All right. Do you know what the show is? Do you? Should I say that there isn't a Demogorgon in the show? Now, what is it, right? It's, you might know, you might not. It's a less popular show than Stranger Things. It's a show called Freaks and Geeks, right? Now, these, that, every sentence I read could have been true for both of those shows. They're very similar in some of these key ways, but why doesn't anybody mind that? Why does it just feel like a tasteful homage rather than a copycat kind of ripoff? What's the difference? I believe that the fundamental difference is the Duffer brothers that created Stranger Things, they took their creative guides, the creators of Freaks and Geeks, that this this critical darling, it's a thing that was so celebrated by not the masses, that's why I got canceled early, but by the critics. Like people were crazy about it and it's this cult classic. Like that is the kind of thing that's easy to take influence from. But they didn't just stop there and just make a remake that's just a carbon copy of what their heroes said to do and said was good. They didn't just, you know, they can't be Luke if they don't disobey Yoda somewhat and see kind of the balance. And so what did they do? They injected a Demogorgon. You know, sci-fi is typically not super celebrated by the critics. It's kind of seen as a lower form of art or literature and uh, it's genre related, like adding a Demogorgon isn't supposed to make it good. Adding monsters to that equation isn't supposed to make it good. And in fact, at the time, there was nothing culturally like breakthrough about that kind of work. Like there wasn't any super mainstream thing like this sci-fi thriller thing. And I think that the reason why people don't mind the influence is because they took their acquired taste, their acceptable taste, and they injected their guilty pleasure tastes. They took that, you know, monster movie, B movie, like even practical effects stuff, and they injected it into their hero's work, their guide's work. You know, I don't think there's enough kind of talk uh, and celebration of how great artists come along and pick up the torch from the people that came before them. You know, there's so many great artists that talk about, you know, going to the places where their heroes left some meat on the bone and then finished up like season one of freaks and geeks. There was just one season. There was so much meat on that bone and 
they, I feel like the Duffer brothers picked it up and ran with it, but did something fresh by injecting their own personal tastes into that equation. And you see this with people like Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter, who said like when they made their first Deer Hunter record, it was just as if Pavement was making a new record. They were like, what would, if Pavement was still a band, which we wish they were, what would their next album sound like? And I think that there's something really brilliant in that too, because it wasn't like we just tried to make, we just tried to remake a pavement record. They try to think, they try to get in the mindset of their creative heroes and guides and think like, what would next have looked like? And so the next one doesn't sound like a carbon copy. Like that meat on the bone thing, I think there's something there. And so here's the call to adventure, the call to action for you today. It's to identify. Yes, your creative guide who is a, Probably they're a celebrated person right in this cultural moment, something that you have learned to love on this deep new level, something that you might not, not have loved the first time you encountered it, but you understood it. You, you know, you tried it a bunch of times until it clicked. And now it's really something that you just deeply appreciate. Name that thing. And then I want you to identify your guilty pleasure that you think uh, there's just a bunch of meat on the bone that everyone else is overlooking everyone. And usually I think it's a critical thing or it's a, it's a cultural thing. It's a thing where at this moment in time, people are just not digging it. They just think, you know, oh, that's kind of lame or whatever. Like identify that thing for me personally, I'm not even going to out myself on my current creative villains that I listen to creatively only because I think there is a little bit of magic in you trusting yourself and not pre-framing it in the wrong way. Like if you say, oh, this is influenced by something that people are like, oh, that's totally lame. Like if they figure it out later after they already like it, that's a different thing, you know, and that's actually exciting and fun. But Name your creative guide, name your creative villain, your creative guide from the acquired taste, your creative villain from the guilty pleasure. And I want you to make the next thing you make inspired by both of those, but ultimately discerning, listening to your own taste, even as the stuff that happens, the happy accidents that happen as you make it, that don't really fit in any camp. Trust that too, if, and only if it meets the definition of good for you. Now, one thing I want to add is when it comes to the definition of good, as you're making your thing, be hyper-specific. This is kind of part of the call to adventure for me, the call to action for this episode is, don't just think, what is good art? That's too broad. That's not defined enough. That's not a true north. That's like literally saying, hey, I want to get to McDonald's around here. Where is it? It's north. It's north-ish. Like, no, you need to know what is the coordinate. You need to type it into the GPS. You need to get more specific than that. So you don't want to just say, what's good art? You want to say, what is not just good uh, writing, but what's good writing for a TV show? What's good writing for a TV show in the genre of this? Like, get hyper-specific. One of the big challenges of the internet, I think, is that it lacks form. I don't remember who said this, but I remember somebody saying that, like, you know, I think it was Frank Camaro, um, who's a designer, who I, I really respect his, his kind of thoughts on creative work. And I think he was saying that, like, the problem with the iPhone is that it's a black rectangle. Like, all of the products before digital, the 
function really was deeply connected to the form. Like the way that a phone was shaped had to do with capturing the sound. Whereas now everything, you know, this is why we had this big movement away from skeuomorphism, this idea that all the apps had to look like the thing they mimicked in real life. Like the notes app has to look yellow, like a legal pad when it's like, no, it doesn't, it can be anything because it doesn't have the, the form doesn't have to follow the function or it doesn't have to follow what came before. But the problem with that is as you go make work and maybe you're just making a project for Instagram, right? Like what is a good Instagram piece? Like that's different because what makes a good TV show isn't what makes a good movie. They're, they're different things. And your definition of good will be different in those places. And I've found, for me, an old timer, age almost 36. Like um, when I go make episode art for the podcast, if I'm like, what is good episode art? It's too vague for me because it's this digital ambiguous space and I got to skew morph it a little bit back to the old times of like, what, like let me think of this as if it were a poster design or a t-shirt design or a sticker design. In every single one of those pieces, I try to have a clear idea of like, this is the thing that I'm trying to create right now because I have a deeper sense of what's good. And so as you go make whatever it is you're gonna make, with the influence from your acquired taste, with the influence from your guilty pleasure, don't forget to also go ahead and define what is good for the type of thing that you're gonna make and get really clear about that because that definition of good is going to be the true north that's gonna allow you to get unlost and actually make progress. shout out to our patrons. This is a partially listener funded podcast by all our patrons on patreon.com slash creative pep talk. There's a bunch of hidden costs to the show, you know, mailing list costs money, hosting costs money, editing costs money, all of it costs money. Um, and we're able to keep doing it because a lot of that stuff is just taken care of out of the gate by our patrons. So thank you. If you are an ongoing listener and supporter of the show, we appreciate you. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf in the band Y for our theme music uh, and our jingle. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pending Beautiful for editing this show so beautifully. And thanks to the whole creative pep talk team, uh, Sophie Miller, Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler. Uh, thanks for all your help. Couldn't do it without you. Until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.